Welcome to Prescription for Justice. I'm your host, Martin Donahue. I have a very special guest today, Matthew Anderson. Matt is a family doctor working in the Bronx, New York at Albert Einstein College of Medicine where he is an associate professor, one who clearly stopped applying for a higher level of tenure many years ago given his qualifications. I'm proud to count Matt as a mentor and a friend and he is co-editor of the online journal Social Medicine, which you can read in both English and in Spanish. Matt is interested in the history of social medicine, particularly Latin American social medicine. Today we're going to talk about immigration on a number of different fronts. And there are other episodes of this program that you may wish to also watch, in case you've missed them, that cover similar issues, but not the same. One is episode eight, which is complicit, which talks about Donald Trump and his immigration history and policies. The other is on immigration and philosophy, episode 11 with Alexander Sager. And the other one is with Dr. Kristen Pollack, speaking about getting kidney transplants covered for undocumented immigrants in Illinois, both a cost-saving and humanitarian measure. Matt, welcome to the program and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I feel honored by uh, speaking in your program and uh, We've worked together for a long time, and I'm always astounded by your website. Um, whenever I have a chance to speak to medical students or medical residents, I'm always uh, referring them to your website, Public Health and Social Justice, because uh, you've got such a rich variety of materials there. Well, thank you, Matt. I think my mom probably wrote that plug, but thank you for uh, making it happy <laughs> and putting it in there. Uh, and, and since Matt did mention it, I will say that you can view all of the programs on YouTube. You can also listen to us as a podcast on KBU Radio. And you can access the programs through the Public Health and Social Justice website where you'll also find probably about 100 now open access slide programs, which means they can be used in whole or in part by anyone with appropriate citation. So Matt, you have a long-standing interest in social medicine. Before we get into the thick of the discussion, just briefly tell me what is social medicine? So that's a question that we very often hear. Um, and fortunately, we're in a department of social medicine, so we ought to know. Um, but if I were to resume it in a few sentences, it would be um, using social context and social conditions. Um, we try to uh, provide better clinical care, clinical care that is informed by uh, the social environment in which people get sick um, or hopefully get well. And that, we to me, frankly, doesn't sound like a very radical approach. It seems like uh, common sense to meet people where they are and looking at their the, the social and the economic and the environmental and the cultural contributors to health and to uh, disease. Yeah, it seems like such a um, such an obvious thing, but it's really not a big part of allopathic medicine. Um, mainly, our medicine is associated with uh, with um, drugs and interventions um, and doing heroic things, and not sort of taking the basic time to get to know patients well and to use that knowledge to the betterment of their health. Right, and much of social medicine is deeply intercalated with medical ethics. And I remember back when I was in medical school, at a very good medical school, I got an excellent education. 
but frankly, there was very little attention paid to epidemiology. There was very little attention paid to issues like homelessness and domestic violence and substance abuse and environmental degradation and exposure to toxins. And in fact, uh, much of ethics was taught in a rather haphazard fashion where you'd get uh, an hour lecture a month, which many students would skip. So it's nice to see that some schools today are paying more attention to the social determinants of health, but um, as we go on, perhaps we can get in a little bit more detail of how social medicine even goes beyond that. Uh, I would like to hear, you have a rather personal story because um, you are a, I guess, first generation born in the United States, correct? Um. Let's see. I guess, yes, that is correct. So tell me a little bit about your family's history, how they got here, and uh, maybe you'll be willing to share even some documentation you have, which is rather <laughs> moving. Um, so you've asked me to come talk tonight to talk about my work with immigration detention as part of um, the, the things that we do. and. Um, Immigration detention is something that found me as opposed to my finding it. And the way it found me was that in the 1990s, I had a very extensive population of people with HIV in my clinical work. And um, many of those people were having pro immigration problems. And their lawyers would search me out because uh, I got a reputation for um, doing this kind of work. And uh, I would um, typically go into detention centers and see people who were detained in the ICE facilities and then write medical affidavits for them in an attempt to get them out of detention. Um, this is an activity that um, sort of at the beginning of the 2000s, I do this a couple of times a year, maybe a little bit more, but I've been very, very busy since the Trump administration has um, been so aggressive about detaining people. Um, so in the, the context of doing all that, I suddenly realized that I actually had something that my grandfather had been uh, detained. Um, he was a German um, engineering student who um, did his practicum on ships that went back and forth between Europe and the United States. And one night on his way back to Germany, he looked out the portal hole and he saw that the stars were all in the wrong places, that he wasn't going back to Germany, he was going back to the United States. And this had happened because uh, World War I had broken out at that period of time. So he basically was stranded in the United States um, for the entire war. Now, he was a man who loved uh, uh, trains and he wandered around the East Coast a little bit, and he went to uh, Richmond, where he was arrested and detained. Um, now, it just so happened that the honorary German consul in Richmond at that time um, sent his daughters out to the jails to meet with the Germans that might happen to be in jail, and the two of them met, and the rest was history. Um, and I wanted to share with you um, something that he drew for her while he was in the jail. This is a, a image probably of the Rhine River. 
and he expresses in this little poem that he that he drew with the picture that hopefully the bells of peace will ring uh, sometime soon. So I realized that my gosh, I had immigration detention within my own within my own family. Mm -hmm. How have the detention facilities changed from when you first started going back in the '90s to how they are today? And and maybe in that context. Tell us a little bit about who gets detained where and why. So um, let me begin by discussing the fact that in metropolitan New York, where we are, the, lar the largest majority of people who are uh, detained are detained in jails. Um, this is done because it's a way for ICE to curry favor amongst local uh, police people or local people, um, local governments, because they're paying they're paying good money to have those their detainees put in the uh, the jails. And to clarify now, for a moment, these detainees these are the undocumented immigrants. We are talking solely about them. Exactly, um, and uh, this is a really bad system because. The jails aren't really, they don't really have the needed resources to take care of people, largely who are speaking Spanish, but sometimes they could be speaking, they could be coming from Africa or someplace in South America where they're speaking languages that nobody knows how to speak. And I would just like you, if you could, to think about what it would be like for you if you were getting on the subway someday and the police stopped you and you didn't have the right papers and all of a sudden you got sent to a local county jail, your nearest relative might be in Montreal in a different place of the country. And um, how difficult, and nobody speaks your language, um, how difficult that is for people. Um, we know because of two reports put out by Physicians for Human Rights that there's an enormous use of solitary confinement amongst the detainees. They are just an incredibly vulnerable population, um, and then many of them are, are suffering from mental illness. Um, about two years ago, I took care of a cohort of 20, or there was a cohort of 20 Haitians who showed up on the border. Um, they had been involved in building the uh, facilities for the World Cup and also for the Olympics. And when all that building was done, they came up north because there are still some of the temporary protected status of uh, Obama. And that's from Brazil at this point, where they were working. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, they were yeah, initially at Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, and they walked across the border, and the ICE officials arrested them all, put them in shackles, and then sent them all over the country. It was a real job we had to put together, that cohort of people. Um, so these are some of the, like, really difficult situations that we deal with. Um, and I would say that ICE is a very averse to providing medical care. They don't see that as their job. They're not interested in doing it. And uh, so a lot of my work is bothering ICE to try to get necessary materials to then make a, um, um, a petition to a, to a judge. The culture is, is, is frightening. They refer to the detainees as bodies. Um, the, the first time I found this, I was actually 
looking at a patient um, in one of the detention facilities, and I suddenly heard the ICE agent say, that all the other people had gone, he said, well, the bodies are all gone. And I thought, what a horrible way to describe the people that you're, you're responsible for taking care of. That's very similar um, to the dehumanization we talked about in one of our episodes where the Japanese researchers in World War II who were doing some uh, human subject experiments on American GIs and uh, also on Chinese individuals involving exposure to all sorts of toxic agents and bacteria, they would refer to those detainees as logs. And it's really one step from bodies to logs, is that dehumanization of the individual. And so is there a requirement that they have translators in this facility? Um, I, I believe they are required to have translators, but I, I well, let me say it differently. Um, most often I have, I have not been in places where there are translators. Fortunately, I speak several languages so I can get by uh, the one time I actually had to use the language line, it was we could not. It didn't work. Mm -hmm. um, so, this is it is terribly iso isolating. Mm -hmm. for people. Mm -hmm. Being in solitary is associated with a lot of really adverse long-term medical and psychological consequences. You want to tell us about that, and how that's viewed on the international human rights level. Yeah, I think this is something that people are just not all that aware of, which is the enormous damage done to human beings when they're put in solitary confinement. And this really goes back to the origins of what a penitentiary was. The Quakers created the first penitentiaries because it was supposed to be a place where you would go and you would be in a small room and there would be a hole in the ceiling when God was looking down on you and you would be penitent. And they thought that this was sort of the best way to do things. Um, but it actually turned out that over a period of time, it probably took them about 50 years before they realized that, no, 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 this was a bad thing to do to people. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the Philadelphia system for a long time. And then after that, it uh, the next system that came along was the one up in Sing Sing, where they allowed prisoners to work together but they couldn't talk together, mm -hmm. um, and they, but they could eat together. And they found that that was a much better system for managing uh, prisoners. Mm -hmm. So the understanding of um, solitary confinement is an old understanding, but not one that not many people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. And from an international point of view, most countries see that as being cruel and unusual. And uh, many countries in Europe will refuse to extradite people here because of our use of uh, solitary confinement. Right, right. And uh, if you've ever been to Salem, Massachusetts, you can actually go into some of the, the cells that they use during the witch trials. And some of them are such that you can't sit down or stand up. So you're basically forced into a crouch position, something that we associate more with the prisons of Abu Ghraib and elsewhere. Uh, but the, the psychological damage, again, is profound. What are some of the reasons that someone would be put into solitary and how much time might they spend there? So um, this is actually a topic that is of intense interest to us in our, de in our, our department because so many of our graduates are working on Rikers Island. Um, 
Rikers Island, for those who don't know about it, is a prison island that's just off the coast of uh, LaGuardia Airport. And it has about 3,000 detainees. 3,000, these, now these, we're not talking about the ICE situation anymore. We're talking about people who are common, quote unquote, common criminals. Um, and typically, the problem you run into is people with mental illness um, in the setting of Rikers, which is also a very stressful setting, um, they'll start to act out. And the easiest things for the guards to do once they're acting out is to just throw them in solitary confinement, mm -hmm. which just makes the situation worse. And there has been a pretty high level of suicides at Rikers Island related to this. And something that uh, my former residents um, really have worked hard to see if they can reduce this as much as possible so that there are more appropriate responses when someone's mentally ill. Mm -hmm. It really, uh also reminds me to, to let our viewers know that the largest mental institutions in the country today are jails. The jail in Chicago, I think, is number one. The L.A. County Jail is number two. And until recently, at the L.A. County Jail, the mentally ill prisoners, instead of wearing orange jumpsuits, had to wear pink jumpsuits, which is basically an invitation to get attacked. Uh, and so guards are not mental health care providers. Uh, they're not trained to take care of people who are having nervous breakdowns, uh, they don't manage patients' medications, things like that. And, and so uh, this is very, very serious. Tell me, Matt, um, so you worked in the 90s. You saw a lot of HIV. I imagine some hepatitis C back then. Have the diseases that you're seeing now changed? We've got drugs for hepatitis C, albeit very expensive and we've got drugs for HIV. How has that changed the medical conditions that you've witnessed? Well, um, we, we, we work, I work about six blocks away from Yankee Stadium <laughs> mm. in what is a very poor neighborhood. And, uh, you know, we see all, all, all the, the diseases that we're taking care of are diseases of the community. Um, you know, hepatitis C is certainly high amongst them. Um, HIV, um, uh, the change I would say we've seen over the past five or 10 years is the drugs have gotten much better. Um, but we still have enormous problems of substance abuse and, you know, sort of an unthinking police type reaction to people who are using drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's also something that hopefully will change a little bit when the if the governor signs the law, signs into law the legalization of marijuana, mm -hmm. um, which will probably bring its own problems to us when it comes, but at least the police won't be arresting teenagers for having a joint. Right. Um, well, it reminds me of a, a headline in the online satirical newspaper, The Onion, Drugs Win War on Drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, the government has not won the war on drugs by criminalizing um, substance use and abuse. And I think a medical model approaching substance abuse in, as a disease is going to be a much more successful way of combating uh, everything from the opioid and meth epidemics to the various cycles that we go through of cocaine being popular, unpopular, and um, that waxes and wanes. Uh, to, to come back to the HIV and hepatitis C drugs and the issue of the undocumented uh, individuals who are being incarcerated, are those drugs available to them? 
So, so um, yes, they are. We, recently, we had a case. I mean, this is the kind of thing that I'll end up doing a lot of. Somebody who was arrested, sent, sent to the detention center, but they didn't have her HIV medication, did not have her HIV medications. And I spent, uh, you know, an evening uh, speaking with the people at the detention facility to make sure that she got her medications. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to step back for a moment and recognize that uh, undocumented immigrants in this country pay taxes. They pay about $25 billion a year in income taxes, about $12 billion a year in state and local taxes, $9 billion in payroll taxes, and $7 billion a year in state taxes. But they're not eligible for many of the programs that they are helping to subsidize for both uh, native-born Americans and um, documented immigrants who, who have achieved citizenship, too. They're not eligible for Social Security, for Medicare, for Medicaid, for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, for disability. Uh, and there are a lot of um, immigrants in the United States. Um, today, there are 25 million non-citizens in the United States. About 11 to 12 million of those are undocumented. Um, there are 44 million foreign-born individuals living in the United States, and if you count them, plus their family, plus their kids, you're looking at just over a quarter of the U.S. population. Uh, so you've got a, a large number of individuals then who are coming here undocumented. Um, my guess is, and you, I hope you can speak to this, is a, a lot of them are not coming um, because they want to be here necessarily. If I lived in Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, uh, and had family there, had a wife and kids, I would much rather be at home with them. So tell me a little bit about what you've seen in terms of the reasons for people coming to the United States. So the country, so um, I actually have a little bit of experience with a number of countries because oftentimes the evaluations I do will be of people who were part of gangs or were potentially going to be recruited into part of gangs. Um, but I actually, I actually have a much greater understanding of the situation in Guatemala. I have family in Guatemala and uh, spent a, almost a full year there on a Fulbright scholarship looking, working in the HIV clinic. I mean, the situation in Guatemala really is sort of a People speak of the failed state um, as, as the countries that just aren't working properly, that that, uh, that just can't get their act together. Um, but I often I think of it in a different way that they're not failed states. They're states which have been that <laughs> they have been forced to fail. Mm -hmm. um, because if you take a country like Guatemala which we could just take uh, the example of the 30 years of civil war that uh, ravaged Guatemala, financed and supported by the United, the United States. Um, this is just a really shocking destruction of the lifestyle and the, uh, the uh, culture of, the, of Guatemala. Um, so, so I want to come back to that in our next half hour. Uh, for our viewers, there'll be another half hour, and we'll talk a little bit about U.S. imperialism and how that 
has influenced immigration as well as even take ourselves back to the slave era. Uh, to, um, I, I think the point I was trying to make was that uh, there are factors within these countries driving individuals to the border. Uh, and to want to come to the United States. They, they often do want to be in their native lands where everybody speaks their language, uh, but they are forced by circumstances to come here. And I think one of the most tragic things is, again, this dehumanization. And, and if your reaction when you see families and pregnant women and young children heading towards the border, desperately hungry, having walked dozens of miles per day, and your first reaction, as those say on Fox News and elsewhere in, in uh, the media, is one of, we're being invaded. We have to protect ourselves. These are hordes of, of angry immigrants who've come to take over our country. If that's your first reaction, you need to look deeper inside your heart. I mean, my first reaction is, oh my God, this is a, a human rights disaster. What has uh, made these people so desperate that they're doing this and that they're, that they're in such awful straits? And I think back to the poem at the base at the, of the Statue of Liberty and the, the history of the United States, at least in word, if not in deed, um, that we are a country that welcomes these individuals and incorporates them into our culture and society. And that has dramatically changed. So. I'm going to take the last word on this for this half hour, if you don't mind. And when we start, we'll go back to that history. And we'll talk a little bit about Guatemala. We'll talk about El Salvador, other areas that you'd like to mention. And then specifically what the Trump administration is doing. So I want to thank our viewers uh, for joining us. Our guest has been and will continue to be for the next half hour, which for those of you watching on TV, we'll, we'll have to wait a month for, uh, has been Dr. Matthew Anderson, who is a family doctor in the Bronx, who has worked in Central America. Uh, he is currently translating a book from German into English about progressive activist reform-minded doctors in Germany in the early part of the 20th century. He is, as you can guess, a polyglot as well as a polymath, and it's been a privilege to have him on. Matt, thanks for joining us. Again, to our viewers, all the shows are available on YouTube at Prescription for Justice. Please sign up as a subscriber. Apparently, we have to reach a certain number of subscribers in order to move us higher up in the rankings. I'm very technologically unsophisticated, and so thanks very much to my uh, director and producer, Roger and Ellery, Ellery who, who have been helpful in getting this show together. And we will see you next time. My name is Martin Donahue, and this has been Prescription for Justice. Thank you. <laughs>